Hello, residents of Meebletown. This is Dean. This is Johnny Pack. And today we're going to be talking about a couple games, but more importantly, we're going to be talking about our top five Wolfgang Kramer games. So thanks for joining us for episode 125. All right, Meeple Town, thank you for joining us for this very special episode with a very special guest, Johnny Pack, which if you didn't know Johnny Pack and the work that he's done in the board gaming world, you've at very least heard us say his name on this on this show, I don't know, at least once, twice, seven times an episode, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, so, but if this is your first episode you've ever joined us for and you have no idea what board games are, then you might not know who Johnny Pack is. So Johnny Pack, tell everybody who you are. <laughs> Thanks. I always appreciate hearing you guys on the show. Um, yes, I'm Johnny Pack. I'm a freelance board game designer, and I'm also the uh, internal developer for Fantasia Games, uh, which is the publisher I recently kickstarted Unconscious Mind, which I'm a co-designer and developer of. And they did Endless Winter, which has uh, recently come out. It's kind of making some splash. And as a freelancer, I've worked on a lot of different games with different companies, such as uh, Coloma and Merchant's Cove, Fistful of Meeples, Sarah West. And uh, yeah, I've been in the industry about about 10 years, and the last few years have been um, where I've gained any traction whatsoever. Yeah, okay. So I didn't realize this, Johnny, until I was, I, I thought about it, just kind of thinking through some things that we might talk about in the episode. And so I don't know if you know this, if I even told you this, but Endless Winter was our combined game of the year. So it was the Meeple Town game of 2022. Um, on top of that, it was actually my game of the year. So the the combined is ours, you know, which game do we feel like together we like the best and it was Endless Winter. But it was also my favorite, but it didn't hit me until yesterday that another game that you were a part of, Merchant's Cove, was my number one game of 2021. And I I really didn't put those two together at all. And I thought, well, maybe I should have, I should have changed my pick. I think maybe if I, maybe I need to spread the love a little bit more. Yeah. No playing favorites. Yeah. That's <laughs> a, <laughs> and obviously not because I, it didn't register in my mind that that was what happened, but it's just games that you are involved in are ones that, that apparently I am enjoying quite a bit. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm always I'm always happy to try to send stuff your way too because I think I you know from watching the show and stuff that our tastes align a lot and I think maybe there's some resonance between some of my work and what your tastes are in general just because we like so many similar games as well. Yeah, I think I think absolutely that's the case, which which is a shame because I I have a game that sits upon my shelf of shame at this very moment that is the Coloma Deluxe Edition that I picked up really, it's been probably about a year and a half ago now. And I still have yet to get that to the table. And I'm told by a lot of people who know my taste that it's probably going to be one that is going to be a big hit for me. Uh, I just, I just have to find the people to play that with. So that is, uh, that's my confession for the episode. That's all, that's all you get. <laughs> it's reasonable. That one's, it's whole concept is that re really works well with high player counts. There's a lot of simultaneous stuff, a lot of group sync and all that for uh, for the size of your row it is. And so really it was kind of like the 2020 hit that game pretty hard because people just weren't gathering in large groups to play um, stuff like that. And it's not really a good couples game. It's not necessarily the best solo game. So um, 
that's also why the publisher did an initial print run and then decided to hold off on doing any reprints, regardless of the stupid prices it goes for on eBay. Um, but you heard it here first. We're actually working on a reprint right now. So we've greenlit that and there's an expansion uh, in the works. That's you heard it here first as well. So that's uh, been going on right now. And to me, it's it's a cool opportunity to uh, kind of take this expansion and really make it like Coloma 2.0 with with all the stuff that I know could have been in there and just bring the complexity up just a skosh because it does run a little bit on the lighter side for the scope of game it is. And uh, from at least my playtesting and my groups and the publisher, we're all pretty excited about this being the definitive Coloma. So that's that's in the queue right now. That's great. So what you're telling me is that copy that I bought a year and a half ago that sits unplayed I've missed my window. Apparently, I'm just gonna have to wait for 2.0, and then no, just kidding. That'll... But just get the expansion, yeah, because it's it's all it's all integrated, yeah. So that way, uh, maybe first time you play it, you get to play it all in and see see what you think. Perfect. All right. Okay. So, going back to unconscious mind and, and some of the work that you you have going on, tell us a little bit about that, um, and, and maybe some other projects that you might be working on that people. Yeah, so unconscious mind's been. Uh... Yeah, it's kind of has been a pretty big undertaking. Uh, I love the game; it's fantastic. I was I was brought in um, as a developer and as a co-designer. This is a four-way co-design, so it's a lot of people on the team, and it's also with two artists. It's got Andrew Bosley and Vincent Dutre doing artwork together, which sounds a little crazy at first, but the the concept is is that in the real world Vienna, where we've got Freud and his contemporaries and more historic stuff. Uh, Vincent's primarily doing the artwork for that. So you kind of get this very authentic, hand-drawn sort of thing. And then uh, in the minds of the patients, you get these fantastical dreams, which are often based on real people's dreams or fine art from that period. Um, A lot of surrealism influences. And that's kind of where Bosley takes over. And there's a few pieces where they feather together, where one artist kind of ends and it blurs and it suddenly becomes the other artist. So... Um, so the whole thing is very collaborative. It's ambitious. It's big. Um, so we're really excited about how that went. It was very well received on Kickstarter. We're just doing kind of the last leg of development with some balancing stuff, streamlining a little bit, working on solo mode, um, little modules, make sure everything fits in, get the rule book done. So we're kind of, you know, fixing stuff in post right now and getting ready for the release of that and uh there's a little standalone game which is called dream world which reuses a lot of the artwork from the game the dreams and some of the portraits that vincent did and it's not really a unconscious mind the card game but it's a card game based in the unconscious mind world which i um authored myself so it's a single design and it's it's like a 20 minute game it's actually a little bit influenced by wolfgang Kramer's um take five or six minute sort of thing where there's a lot of simultaneous play and then you're laying cards out on the table and depending on what cards you play the number they kind of fall into different rows and orders like that and then you're able to um, score based on that criteria so that's that'll be fulfilling uh with unconscious mind and also going to retail and stuff like that as well that's great and one, one of the words that you use is ambitious which i would say that is very true it's, it does seem like such a unique undertaking the whole world is, is just such a unique and and uh, maybe even refreshing when you think of the board game realm, it's easy to kind of get stuck in some of the same uh, same themes and same um, mechanisms and, and unconscious mind seems to be, be s- such a, a diversion from all of that. Yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about that. 
it's a tough one though because you know we had to you know it's like not all freudian stuff is well for one accurate or contemporary as far as that goes and a lot of it's not for general audiences either a lot of it's you know stuff you shouldn't have in board games and so there's there's a certain amount of how do we dance around some of those certain things and not pathologize certain stuff or 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 add things that really shouldn't be in a family it's not like it's a family game but we want it to be family friendly all the way through so it's g-rated you know so uh, we had to do a lot of research have consultants you know for the historic side we had the consultants for the um, psychological side and all that and then just doing a lot of web research to make sure that we're using terms that are all pc and acceptable in today's today's world as well as accurate enough for when we're trying to depict in the history there in the midst of all that with all the different place testing and development and all that uh, do you have time to play other games are there other other games you've been playing lately that uh that you want to talk about that might not be in the realm of i can't talk about this because it's not fully developed yet uh, yeah, I mean, I playtest a lot, and I'd say it's more than half of my gaming sessions is playtesting. But I've, I really feel like some writers say, hey, if you want to be a good writer, what do you need to do? You need to read. As a musician, you need to listen to music to play good music. And I feel like the same thing is with games. Is I don't need to play everything. I'm not a content creator reviewer trying to stay on that. But there's authors and types of games that I feel like I can learn from and or at least get a sense of what the, the current sidecast is of people's expectations. So when I, when I hear about certain games like that, um, I go way out of my way to make sure I can try to play those. Like um, during Essen last year, it's like, okay, uh, Revive and Woodcraft are coming out. It's like, I really like the design teams behind both those games. And it's like, I need to play both those games as soon as possible just to see where they're at because I feel like those guys are the people that inspire me the most. And so those are a couple of games I really enjoyed from last year. Um, I guess it's, I don't say, Tilatum, the board and dice game with uh, Simone Luciane and uh, Daniela. Uh, I thought that was mechanically fantastic. It's very beige, and there's weird Egyptian pillars throughout the whole thing, which doesn't make sense to me. But mechanically, I enjoyed it. And just seeing that it's one of those games where if, if you play it, you know, there's, there's times where you have an action combo that's like, take nine actions in a row in any order you choose. Like there's some crazy combos that go on in that. And that just kind of shows me, it's like, okay, like how far can combo taking happen? And they actually give you these little chips in the game to just keep track of your combos because they know you're going to get lost. I saw that in Witchstone a little bit where they're like a combo tracker. And then this was just taken to like 11 where it's like, they're fully aware that the combos are so deep and long in this that you'll lose track of yourself. You'll get lost in your own museum. So that was like okay that's that's a good like high water mark where combo taking can go and and say my own work i might i love combos but i might roll it back just a skosh that i don't have to hand somebody uh here's 11 tokens so you can take your 11 actions and not forget the 12th one right it's like um so that's the kind of stuff i like to play and figure out and kind of integrate into my my thinking as a contemporary designer so a game that you mentioned to me that that you had played recently is ultimate railroads which i have played um oh goodness the russian railroads i played the original just the base version of that game but i've never played ultimate railroad so i'm super interested to hear your thoughts on this one yeah that's that's probably a good one to bring up so i've i uh had an old copy of russian railroads back when it came out before it was a big chase thing and i was actually able to get the expansions original expansions when they came out not pay stupid money for those and so i was very familiar with the game and i also really like that same designer's game called uh, first class it's almost like a russian railroads the card game so when i saw ultimate railroads was coming out it was kind of like 
I'm mostly excited because I know a lot of other people are finally going to get to play Russian railroads and be able to get the German railroads expansion and stuff. Uh, for me, it was obviously there's one new expansion in there that would freshen things up or out something different and some minor tweaks and some component upgrades or changes. So, um, so as soon as that came out, I uh, played it, you know, some stuff. And then, I, of course, I really wanted to get in there and check out the new expansion, which is the, the Asian Railroads uh, part, which kind of decentral, uh, kind of centralizes the tech track. If you're familiar with the game, there's kind of a little uh, daisy chain of stuff that's going on your player board. It kind of puts that into a central arena instead of um, on your own area. But I, I think that game is just phenomenal. I'm not really like a Railroads sort of gamer it's uh if you say hey it's a train game it's kind of like might as well tell me it's shipping in the mediterranean or some other theme that i'm pretty lukewarm about um but mechanically i just feel like that game has some of the most splashy crazy combos that i've seen in games and it's also um interesting point is that such a it's known to be a very high scoring game so you see people on bga and all this posting these absurdly high numbers and you kind of go like okay, is that necessary? Because in Sinner, a lot of times you're always trying to reduce the points down to the lowest amount possible, full points into points, so that way people don't have to do a lot of math and count stuff up or have to go around the score track three times, right, with a whole bunch of, like, plus 100 chips. Um, and I think that game is a really cool case study for why it actually needs a lot of points, because you do get the granular points. Like, you get a point here, a point there, but there's times in that game where you do something, it might just give you 40 points for doing this big thing and so you kind of look at that and go all right, all right so every gradation is there there's no like kind of false thing like the smallest number of points you typically get is usually five and i would argue as a designer well make that the one and reduce the numbers considerably but in this case it really actually makes sense that you want the itty bitty granular numbers all the way up to these just broken seeming numbers you're like what i get 40 points for that 20 points for this and it comes together though it's just it's uh it's just a fascinating structure of point salad and the combos and the loose turn structure of that whole design is just to me is kind of uh, it puts a, lot of, a certain amount of faith in the players which i like because it's like sure here's this big sandbox of all these things you can do in different orders and all this it's worker placement sure but uh we trust that you can find your way through this and you can grok the best order to eke out these combos. Or if I do it this way and I land on that spot, it's going to give me this token. If I use that, I can pick up these five tokens and this other thing gets a card and there's two. And then it's just as these incredible moves and you feel really clever when you pull one off. And uh, I feel like that game at first class, they're just, they're in their own class of, of games where you take combo, combo taking to that next level. And uh, I don't feel like uh, I need action point chip reminders to remind myself how many separate actions I get. It feels like one holistic big combo um, when you pull one off in that game. And I just think it's phenomenal. And the way they integrated the expansions, it's a lot of times it's, you get games where um, I'm guilty of this sometimes where you can swap in and out a lot of different uh, stuff or you just, it's additive. You just add and add until it gets bloated. And this one I feel like has a certain clairvoyance that, uh, when you play with the German railroads thing, you just put that in. And I think there's like a coal module you can optionally add or not. But typically it's like you just do one of the things, American railroads, you play with American railroads, you leave the German in the box and that's what it has. And it has a certain flavor and a certain emphasis on a system in in that game. It's like, what is this one emphasizing? Okay, that's why it's, it's about these tracks over here, or this one's about this 
board over here, it has just kind of a, a focus in each of those expansions to bring something different out about it. And I know some people are gonna be like, oh, I want a kitchen sink and play everything all at once or else I'm not complete. It's like, eh, this game isn't about that. It's about these different worlds that you can kind of go into and um, develop your strength as a player to kind of maybe set aside a favorite pet strategy that you have. Like if you're really about the tech tree on the bottom of the board and you play the Asian Railroads expansion, it's like, now you got to do that in a shared space. That's going to change how you approach uh, that system of the game and maybe make you rethink it or abandon it or get even better at it. Um, so I just think it's fantastic. So uh, theme aside and all that, it's just thumbs up for me. Yeah, I quite like it. It actually, that that has sold me on it more. And I haven't done a whole lot of research. And I really love the base game a lot. I have had great experiences with that. But I haven't read much on the expansion material other than to hear that you really do. A lot of people would call it essential, which I guess is why they put all this together in this Ultimate Edition. But the way you're describing it in the same vein as First Class uh, first class, the way that it does it is taking those different card decks and and mixing those together. And each of those decks is uh, thematic, I guess, is maybe the right way to say it. But it has its own flair, like you said. You know, it has its own um, feel to it, which I love. The way I, I love first class as a game that I think is phenomenal, anyway. But the way that those those decks come into play and there's some expansion material that you can get with it, but I don't know how necessary it is just because there's so much different variety playing with those decks and, and kind of exploring the way that they play out. So it sounds like that's pretty similar to how uh, Russian railroads is, which if you don't know, by the way, those are um, first classes by the same designer and um, is, is kind of in that same has a bit of the same, like almost like a card game version of Real, Russian Railroads, although it's its own, it's its own game for sure. But it kind of gets lumped in that category, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's fair to say there's it's like there's no like exact mechanism that's the same between the two games, but the feel is there. That same sandboxy feel. The theme is similar with the trains, and you just kind of get in that same um, whatever whatever mindset you have to get into to play Russian railroads. It's a very similar mindset that you're going to get into when you play first class. So when people say, Hey, should I get one or the other? It's, I don't think it's a case where I can really recommend one over the other, but it's, it's definitely one where I said, you need to get both. If you like one, you will love the other one and vice versa. And you'll probably be torn for the rest of your life, which one you like better just because they're, they're so good. Yeah. It sounds like John, uh, John, Johnny Meepletown. So he, he has a copy of this on his shelf and he's played it uh, a decent amount, definitely more than I have, but he, he picked up ultimate railroad. So I just need to go to his house is what it sounds like and, and get a play of this. Well, let me tell you about a game I've been playing from Devere games. Uh, Devere is a company that I have come to really enjoy. <laughs> um, and they like us too, which is helpful, but they sent us a couple of games, but one of the ones that they sent us was, I've got the box. No one can see this, but I'll show this to you, uh, Johnny. It's uh Savernake forest. Um, which I, it took me a while to figure out the pronunciation and I still might be wrong about that. But the best I could tell is Savernake. I was thinking Savernaki. I actually thought it was Japanese themed and I was way off. Apparently it's a forest that's in England. So uh, Savernake or Savernake is the, the best pronunciation I, I can come up with. But it's a small box card laying in, this, in the vein of like a tile laying game where you have these, this animal. Everybody starts off with one animal that is worth a, uh, a point value just by itself. It might be worth three points, okay? 
it also has a path that comes off from it. And you're going to be laying cards down in a four by four grid and building upon that path. And the path has food that goes along with it. So there's eggs, there's uh, four foods. So it's berries, I think nuts, eggs, and worms or something like that. So on that path, it will say this squirrel can eat up to two food away and the worms might be worth zero points, but berries are worth two points. Okay, so basically it's saying so every berry that that squirrel gobbles up is going to be worth two points at the end of the game, plus the base value of whatever that animal was. The trick is it might only be able to eat food up to two spaces away. But if you add on these little tokens onto the squirrel, these layer tokens, it says for every layer token, I can eat a food that's one more away. So you're building this path with more and more food on it, but you also need to be able to put the, the layer tokens onto the squirrel. At the same time, you're drafting new animals, so you're building all these new paths, but those those paths don't need to cross because you're going to negate the points that they can get if they cross paths with the other animals. So you want to have a squirrel by itself down its own path and a skunk down another path and a bird or, you know, whatever that is. But the way that the, the main mechanism of the game is, is a drafting mechanism. You've got four different spots to draft from where four cards are. Three of those are path cards and one's an animal card. The first spot for the path card lets you, if you take the card from that place, you also get the first player token for the next round. The next one is a, is a water spot. It's the goat spot. And so if I take from there, I get that path card to play, but I also get a water token that when I add that onto the different food for a specific animal, it increases the amount of points that that animal might get. So even if it gets zero points for worms, if I put a water token on there, now it's going to get one point per worm, but you can only put one of those per, per food. Um, and then the layer token that I mentioned was the other spot. And then the last spot is just taking a brand new animal. The game is super simple. Uh, you know exactly how to play it now. I, we could sit down and play the game right now, plays in about uh, 20 or 30 minutes, something along those lines. My wife and I played this at a two-player count, which I would imagine all player counts play pretty similarly. The, the drafting, you're kind of getting in each other's way. But other than that, it, it plays essentially the same way. She really enjoyed this. It is super puzzly. And, and that's one thing I like about Devere games. I don't know if you played a lot of their games, but they tend to be a, a fairly simple rule set for a lot of, the, especially their smaller box games. But they also tend to be on the really thinky side. And this one fits smack in that category. I would even say on the lighter side than most of their games. But the thinkiness is still very strong there. And I, I have really enjoyed my plays of this one. I think... Um, I think this is one we're going to hold on to and we'll get some we'll get some friends to play this one, ones that don't necessarily play games all the time and and are going to be OK with some thinky choices. We'll, we'll definitely get this one to the table more. Sounds like um, maybe fans of something like Cascadia might enjoy this, right? Because you get that like entangled yep. choice where you're picking a bonus in this case and a card instead of like an animal and a tile. And then you're kind of like baking it into your player tableau to you know maximize your scoring potential and stuff like that so maybe maybe that it'll resonate with that audience maybe the weight is similar too yeah a hundred percent actually that's my mind and my wife's our mind went there right away as soon as we played the game we had introduced cascadia to a couple friends that are not gamers at all and uh, they really like cascadia and that was initially what we thought this this would be perfect for them they would really enjoy 
this one. And they have a game like that too, um, Luna Capital that Devere does that that is a lot like Cascade. It has a lot of similarities to that same drafting style. So yeah, I, I tend to find that uh, Lines of Lydia is another good example of that, Johnny, is those those games that I can teach quickly and it's it's easy to grasp, but the but the thinky level, thinkiness level is is strong. I tend to really, really be attracted to those games. Yeah, I like I like that stuff too. It's um, another one of the designers I try to follow a lot and research is um, Phil Walker Harding because I think he's very good at that, having very accessible, simple rule set, um, accessible themes. But there's usually some hidden depth in his games that warrants the attention, right? And so, if, even something like Imhotep, which is one of my favorites, it is it's like you know, you sail a ship or take a block, you know, and put them on your thing. And it's like it's so simple what your choices are, but it's so agonizing every time you do it. And um, think that's really very good elegant design right there yeah absolutely agree with that big fan so that's that's uh Sabernake or Sovernake forest if that's interesting to you now we we are going to be jumping into a top five list one that i think johnny has been super excited about i know <laughs> i i've been excited about this mostly because i've been excited to talk to johnny specifically about doing our top wolfgang Cromer game so let's get to it johnny i am going to i i think i'm going to ask you you're the expert first off i want you to talk (laughs) about wolfgang Cromer because you have a cool story before we get started i think yeah so a little quick background is um i'm a big fan and i also like his games of his often collaborator uh, michael kiesling but i also like Cromer's games by himself and i like his games he's collaborated with other designers uh, he's worked with a lot of things and he's if not really familiar with him he's kind of like one of the early rock stars of german board game design he's they even call him this like papa Cromer because he's just he's he's the guy that designed the first game that has a scoring track that goes around the perimeter of the board so it's like we just feel like that must have been around since the pyramids or something but no it's like it came out with one of his kids games but that's something that we just take for granted now so oh scoring track at the end of the board put your markers on you know zero and go it's like he's the guy that did that first um so there's there's a lot of lineage in his games and if he didn't invent something sometimes he's also one of these guys that might have popularized something but um like his Mask Trilogy, which uh, has Tikal as kind of the most famous of those. That's like the game that really solidified uh, action point allowance systems. And as we've seen those kind of come and go in other games over the years, you look back and you just go, there's, there's so many things that he's pioneered um, that you may or may not know can be attributed back to him. And he's also done some things for the industry, which was uh, famously him and a bunch of other designers uh, made a pact and they all signed a beer coaster saying that uh, from that night forward, they would always ask publishers to have uh, their author credits on the front of the box. And again, in this hobby market, we just think, oh, designer game, your name just goes on the front automatically. It's well, that's not always true. We don't see uh, famously, it's obviously the author of Monopoly didn't get credited properly. And a lot of those American games and stuff like that, we just don't think of the author being on the front. And then we've got this wave of German games and you just go like, okay, names go on the front. And now that's just, it's just common. If it's not on the front, it's almost confusing as a customer. You go like, who designed this? Where do I have to go? A BGG only? It's like, or I have to actually buy, open the rules to find the author. It's like, no, you always find the author so clear now. And he's one of the people that really, 
uh, you know, made that conversation happen and set that precedent. So there's, there's a lot to it with that. So there's, there's that side, which is really cool. And then on the personal side, I just, I personally resonate with his games a lot. And I have since I uh, first started playing them, I want to say, I'm not sure which the first was, it might've been six and empty or slide five or take five. Um, but I know El Grande had a big impact on me when I first played that because that was one of his first uh, area control games. There's a lot of you know simultaneous action selection, which has gone on to influence my style and some other things. And then I remember the first time I played to call, it was like that action point allowance system just like blew my mind. And it was like, oh, this is so cool. So um, as I've gone on as a collector, I've I think I have about 80, 80 Cromer games in my collection. I have a lot, um, but he's made hundreds of games so it's it's still just a fraction of his overall output so picking uh top five was a l- little bit tricky for me so i've you know <laughs> gone down to that but the, the other half of the story is i actually got to meet him at essen last year so uh i have only been to essen twice went there in 2019 for the release of coloma and then i went there with fantasia in 2022 and uh one of the guys at fantasia kind of grabbed me off the floor. I was doing a demo or something and said, Hey, come back here, come back in the office. Somebody wants to meet you. And, and, uh, I walked back there and I, I recognized him right away. I was like, oh. I think my words were my hero, my hero. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I was so excited to meet him. He was such a kind man. His wife was with him and, uh, he was talking about some stuff and he's elderly, you know, he's walks slowly and you're like, Oh my gosh. But when he starts talking about design, this, childlike fire just gets into his eyes and he starts talking and it just like starts bellowing this amazing thing just it was like contagious like wow this guy's like a true wizard of the craft and uh it was just exhilarating just to hear him talk about what he's working on and what he was kind of pitching to the company and some ideas to collaborate and uh you know i was just totally flattered and i really wanted to get his autograph so i didn't have one of his games there from the autograph because i already own it all so i ran over to the uh nearby booth while he was still in the office carrying on conversation to uh, the Korean board games just released a new prettier copy of Princess of Florence, which I already had. So I ran over, there were some euros, bought it as fast as I could, grabbed my Sharpie and ran all the way back. I was like tearing off the shrink while I was like running through the crowd. And then I was like, can you sign this for me? And, you know, I put his little autograph on there and uh, we took a picture together. And it was just, uh, it's a real honor to meet him. It was, uh, I, I would say I was more probably more excited to meet him than I would, you know, actually meeting a rock star or something like that. Well, I'm super pumped to hear yours. And I'll, I'll say, I, so we went back and forth on this a little bit. Are we going to do Kiesling Cromer? Are we going to just do uh, Cromer games? And I am the one who said, hey, I think I really need to just do Cromer. And I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right off the bat. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm already showing my, my hand right now. Four out of five of my picks are... Kiesling Cromer. So all, you know, both of them together because they, they, I really love those games that they co-designed together. That being said, I felt very strongly that I couldn't leave my number one game off the list. And that's really the biggest reason why I felt the need to, to just strictly say Cromer. So, so I will, uh, I will, I'm going to start first. My first one is a one that I actually have some questions for you um, some design questions on this one. And this is Palaces of Carrara. Specifically, I'm talking about the the new edition. It's the only edition that I've played. Um, uh, that's not true. I guess I, I played the initial, I don't know the differences between the two, but I have played the original one time and I've played this other one uh, probably two or three times. Uh, so in this game, you are 
you are choosing really between buying or or building. That that's kind of the gist of this game. You're you're buying materials from this wheel in the middle of the table that's going to be turning. And there's a little bit of push your luck there because I might want to really buy these resources now that are really expensive. But if I know that if I wait for them to come back around my turn later, they might not be there. And so I have to make that decision. Do I want to do that now or wait for a possible discount or even a free resource out of this if I wait long enough? At the same time, if I have the resources, do I want to build or do I want to score the buildings that I have? There's a lot of uh, maybe FOMO is the, this is kind of FOMO, the board game where it's like, I, there's all these things that I want to do before you do, but you have to wait to kind of get the best value, the best bang for your buck for this one. I absolutely love this game with one exception. And I think it, it, it's possible just the games that I've played specifically, but there is a tile on here that when you get it, it allows you to score, um, your green building so there's two different color buildings there's green buildings and brown buildings on this one it allows you to score your your green buildings i could be getting this wrong i should have looked at this beforehand for it's like three three points per building or something like that more uh it's it's a it's a multiplier of three as opposed to the normal single multiplier that you get for for the points on those buildings and i have found the games that i've played and and john uh, felt this way too we really talked about this a lot i felt like that tile was so overpowered in all the games that we played it seemed like whoever got that tile was the one that was going to win the game and I had wished, and it's probably my lack of playing too, I had wished that was a two-time multiplier instead of a three because it seemed like it wasn't, wouldn't have been as powerful that way. But I don't know what your experience is with this game. But I, I love the gameplay itself. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's a very good game too. So I, I was aware of that game in 2012 when it was announced. And I guess Z-Man had the rights for and they did this itty-bitty print run. And it was just this grail game forever. And you can only get it in German. And there was a lot of cards that only had German text on it. So, uh, so I played it uh, back in the day, roughly when it came out. Somebody had a copy. They had paste-ups of the English rules and stuff like that and really enjoyed it. I think I played it twice, but it's, it's been a number of years. And then uh, Game Brewer recently re-released, I think, the version that you're talking about here. And I, right. it's been so many years, and I haven't actually played the, the Kickstarter version, which I did get in recently to see that. So I'm not, not sure if they've made any numbers changes to that or if there's any like uh, countervailing balancing with that particular tile. But I, th I think there's a lot of things like that where FOMO is kind of a good way to put it or agonizing choices where you do this, you do that, or you you have to uh, evaluate something. It's like, this is worth this many points for me, or this is a good tile. It's not such a good tile. And there's also kind of a dynamic ending that you could kind of push the the duration of the game and kind of catch people at a inopportune time, whatever else. So there's, there's just a lot to it. Um, I've heard people say, oh, it's, oh, it's kind of dry, you know, because it's just castle building and there's just arbitrarily color colors of bricks and things like that and it's like okay it's but it's no more dry than any other euro game of that class i, mean, I, I wouldn't be able to report on the three times or two times multiplier but as a designer multiplicative scoring is always one of those terrifying things because it blows up right it's one of those things where you know plus one to something is very controllable and you kind of know the numbers but if you have multipliers like they can stack and then you look at either side of that equation uh, they can swing games quite a bit. And sometimes that's a tool and sometimes it's 
not. So for instance, like with Merchant's Cove, almost everything in there is multiplicative scoring, but we did that on purpose because it's you control the market as a player dynamic. So it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, we could this one good could sell for 48 coins where this other one could sell for virtually zero. But the players have to navigate and either uh, piggyback on that or work around that system. So my ultimate pyramid, uh, opinion is that if it's transparent and like that really good tile comes out and the players have um, an option to kind of like who's going to pull the trigger on it first or pay more for it or leverage it, then that's kind of a player balance situation. Whereas if, for instance, uh, somebody just, uh, you draw a card and you drew a card that's no points, I draw a card and it's worth 30 points. Well, the game just handed somebody the victory at that point. They didn't earn it. They didn't speculate on it and they didn't jockey for that. So that's kind of where I'll typically fall is that not everything has to be balanced across the boards. Granted that there's um, some agency behind the acquisition of those points or process to get that thing. So I think we'd have to kind of look at maybe this game with that, that view too, to see if there's what kind of systems in place to allow that not to just fall in somebody's lap and just like, Oh, I got the tile. Cool. I got the winter tile. Right. And that's kind of where we landed. Just don't let those people buy it. You're going to have to start buying up green tiles, even if it's not as beneficial for you, but just to prevent them from having such a strong multiplier, which is, um, there's a lot of that player interaction in that sense, which is, um, which is fine, but obviously, I didn't. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me enough to keep it off the list. I think it's a fantastic game. I quite enjoy it. That's my number five, Palaces of Carrara. Good one, yeah. Um, that almost made my list, but it'd been so long since I played it, and I knew I just got this new edition. I wanted to feel out the new edition before I added it to the list. Um, my number five uh, actually has a new edition, but I don't. I think it's just a cosmetic change. It was just on Kickstarter is Coal Baron. But more specifically, actually, um, I really like Coal Baron the card gamers. Coal Baron the great card game, as it's called, which is an ambitious title, but it's true, it is a great card game. Um, Both games are very good, and I probably have to say if I had to pick one, I might go with the card game for uh, for a design reason. So the original game, Coal Baron, is fantastic. It's a worker placement game. It's one of the ones that, one of the first games I played where uh, you, you place a worker, you do the action. If somebody else wants to go and do that action, they have to place an additional worker. So you kind of raise the cost of going in there. We've seen things like that pop now up in like Honey Buzz and stuff like that, where you have to place more beeples for a place that's been occupied. So it kind of ramps up. It's nice. You're not just denying people spot, getting locking them out. You're just creating a premium and they're losing efficiency by um, that. And I thought that was good. And, and the, there's this little elevator system in Coal Baron, which is just delightful, where you get you know, deep down in the caverns, you're loading up your coal, and you bring this little elevator up to the surface, and you're loading it up on all these different trains and things. And it's good. It's a fantastic hero. The Coal Baron, the card game, to me, kind of falls a little bit like First Class, where it is a card game. It's just a box of cards, and there's a lot of different types of cards. Uh, the fascinating thing is, once you start playing it, you forget you're playing a card game. You think you're playing a full-on giant board game with workers and all these things you're doing, and they just utilize cards in such neat ways where you layer stuff and put things here, that, and you create a tableau. It just feels like a proper board game, but it just reduces down into information on cards primarily. And uh, I just think it's incredible. And there's also some cool things that kind of work with that where you kind of put down... um, as a proxy for, I'm going to put down multiple workers, you kind of like layer cards that are kind of your worker cards. So in a sense, it's like you're even doing a worker placement-esque thing 
via cards in this. And I think as a design principle, it's like if you wanted to research how to make a really cool card game that's that's just doesn't feel like a card game, play that and play first class because you'll come away with a lot of differences because we'll put on our blinders sometimes like, oh, let's make a card game. And what do you think of? Oh, trick taking, uh, things with hands, things that work this way. And we just start to fall into card mechanisms or Dominion and deck building all this stuff. It's like you can do other stuff with card games and those two games are a very very good example of how to do that this is going to make my list a little bit easier my number four was card baron uh, coal baron not card baron coal baron i actually haven't played the card version of this but the fact that you're comparing that in the same way i, I would i really want to try that now I've, there's actually the card game is not difficult to come by or, or use it wasn't for a while anyway maybe it is now i know they're reprinting the the board game version of this i'm actually it looks beautiful. I, I'm perfectly happy with the old Colbert version that I have, but but the 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 worker placement I think is fascinating. It is done in other games now, but it seemed like such a unique um, and it was it was such a unique way of of take on worker placement. But when you take the action that only gives you a certain amount of you know the action point selection for moving the elevator up and down is something that I like quite a bit in the blocking of the player interaction that happens that with that game. But it's not it's not full-on blocking. Like you said, you can still go into the spots. It's just going to cost you more workers. The scoring in the game is fantastic. I love how you not only have to complete the orders, but then you have to deliver them, and you want to be efficient in how you deliver those. I really like Colbert, and that is my, that's my number four. So that was fast. Yeah, bada bing. So my number four is a real toss-up. So uh, if I could, I would just say the Mask Trilogy, but I can't really quite do that. And there's also this little caveat that there's a cousin to the Mask Trilogy, which is Torres, which uses the same action point allowance system. It's not set in a jungle and anything like that, and you're building these little towers. If I had to pick, I might actually go with Torres just because it's a cleaner choice because I feel like I'd be breaking up the band to go with... Uh, call say or probably my my favorite of the the mass trilogy would be java um, and so torres would be the one but it's basically taken the like a the action point allowance system that you see in the mass trilogy and you've got these three-dimensional stackable tower chunks and you're building towers with different scoring criteria you're playing cards to kind of score um high setup that's criteria you're kind of playing to uh, manipulate stuff move your units around on this whole thing so it has a very very nice table presence and uh, it's been reprinted quite a few times. I think it was either one Spieldiars or it was nominated at some point. Um, but that would kind of be my one. And again, I love the action point uh, allowance system where you've, your turn starts and you have kind of like X amount of bucks to spend on various actions that take a certain number of these things. And you kind of, you can do the same one multiple times or you can do different ones and kind of count out what you spend and any remainder that you don't use for an actual action just turns into change that you don't get to keep and you just add those to small points on the scoring track that would be my number four okay my number three is a it's a, a little bit lighter maybe than the games we've talked about so far this is in the family weight game and that is adventure land i i think this one is is quite unique and i'll be honest it's a really difficult one to explain i think because it's scenario based the the main mechanism is the same in that you're starting off with your your workers on the side of the board, you've got some at the top, some on the side, on the left side of the board, and you're going to be moving either down or across to the right 
And whatever space you land on, if there's something there, you're going to pick it up to kind of help you with your journey. And each scenario, in the initial scenario, you're going to get points from defeating these monsters. You're going to get points for picking up gold and picking up herbs and lots of things. But the herbs and the swords are going to help you in the battles, which is a dice rolling mechanism, which with some kickers uh, with your swords and your and your herbs. And that's it. You're just trying to get the most points. And you're also picking up companions that help you with the battle. And you're also going to gain points the more companions you have with you. But that's the first scenario. The other scenario, you're going to get points in different ways. And, and, and there's an expansion with it. And it's all unique, I guess, is the best way to come up with it. But the gameplay itself is not difficult. And in fact, it is a family weight game, one that my kids have enjoyed playing with me. Uh, my wife, actually just the other day unprompted went up and picked it up from out upstairs because we hadn't played it in a while and we still it's sitting on the table right now we're probably going to play it tonight or tomorrow i just have such fun memories of this game this was a, a haba release when they started to kind of move into the the family weight games they had karuba that came out that same time which is another game that we really liked uh that came out but Adventureland is just a, a big hit for my family, and I was surprised at how much I I have enjoyed playing this over the years. Yeah, it's it's a good one. It's 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 a uh, yeah. Even with all scenarios, and it's very accessible and little abstract elements and thematic elements. It comes together really nicely, though. And I'm not sure how easy it is to get that game right now or not. It seems like some people have said it's a little tricky to get your hands on. But if you do and you see it, you know, flea market or whatever else, I highly recommend it. My number three is uh, Cosmos did a German release of this game only. And I'm really scratching my head why it never got an English edition. Um, it's called Nauticus. So it's a Kramer Kiesling game from kind of the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And it's really cool. It's, it's a little heavier than some of their other stuff. And it feels like a proper midweight hero, maybe on the weight scale of um, Porta Negra. I don't know if you played that or Princess of Florence. It's kind of, a, or Paris. It's kind of of that weight. Um, Palace of the Carrara. It's, it's in that weight of their, their catalog. So uh, really cool action selection mechanism, kind of rondellish thing where you're, working on stuff and then ultimately what you're trying to do is build ships you're building ships by putting the pieces together and putting little um, sails on them and putting cargo in the bottom of the ships and kind of sailing around but the the whole way that the action selection uh works there is just fascinating i hadn't really seen it done before where you're kind of picking an action then you kind of slide this little tile in and it kind of changes what the what the bonuses are for players to get highly recommended it's hard to get um I haven't even heard whisperings of anybody thinking of doing a, a reprint or a new edition of it or anything like that. So if, if you can find a German copy of Nauticus, the rules are on BGG. There's no in-game text whatsoever. And uh, grab it if you can. It's fantastic. I don't even know if I've heard of this game before, which um, that looks, that's cool. I'm looking at pictures of it right now. That looks, that looks great. Something that I would probably quite enjoy. Um so a game that you mentioned in there is my number two, which is Paris. Um, I, and this is a game that it, it's, it came out in 20... Oh, goodness, I just had it pulled up here. 2020, is that right? Um, that's right, 2020. And this this is one that came out with uh, uh, by Game Brewer. They're bringing out some of these uh, Cromer Kiesling games and Paris is uh, a game where you are you have these different boroughs in Paris and you are deciding do I want to 
first everyone draws a tile and you decide which uh, you pick a tile based on the the burrow that you know it's going to go but you don't know exactly which tile you're going to draw one of six options then you place it in that burrow and you have to decide do i want to place my key into one of those burrows to take money or do i want to build in that uh put my presence within that uh, burrow you've got some area control that's happening within those different burrows but you're also going to get special actions this is another one of those games where you have to make tough decisions of do i want money and the answer is yes you always need money and money is so tight in this game but you also want to put your presence in there and it's so important to do that but you the timing is so important and i i tend to like that in games as well just the games that offer really tough decisions and the timing of when you take actions and paris is is a big hit i've not had the chance to play the expansion of this yet but i haven't really had the need to just because i've enjoyed the base game so much and that again is a a cromer and keesling designed together yeah the other little element of that like there's kind of this track of tiles that you can move a, a piece along and it's one of those things that reminds me a little bit of like glenmore or something where you can kind of go as far as you want but you can't go backwards so you have to kind of pace yourself and also kind of speculate on how far other players are going to go to have restraint so you can kind of pick up more tiles as you go through this little track and kind of when to lunge for the bonuses that you think are going to be most beneficial really like the game the only caveat i have is i feel like as the game winds down there's kind of this cool off period where you stop being able to take really big, meaningful turns. And instead you just kind of chip away at the fuse, which is the end game trigger and take like a resource or a thing. And you kind of just cools off. And I'm not sure why that was there, why it couldn't have come out with a bang, but um, it definitely feels like there's kind of a long cool off period towards that. And it'll finally kind of wind to an ending instead of, you know some big bombastic final moment which sometimes can leave a, a lasting impression on the player my number two is porta negra and this one was part of stronghold's great designer series number one or two or whatever it was when they're kind of rolling those out and i think great western trail was part of that initial rollout when they did that uh, this game for some reason i've seen discounted so many times i think they printed too many or just didn't catch on maybe the theme was not with people or the art wasn't wasn't there uh i've seen it for sale for like new for 15 dollars stuff like that uh if you ever see a copy of it just impulse buy grab it. it's fantastic but um to me it it really kind of pulls together things that Kramer teasling did in a lot of other games but in a very new and focused kind of way like i mentioned i like torres a lot well it uses kind of the same little tower chunks as Torres, but you do area majorities and in uh, these different districts in new ways and the way that the resource works there's a little rondelle rondelles are fun um it's great and there's this other inflection point in the game which i think is really fascinating is you start with a certain amount of money you play about halfway through the game you score it halfway through familiar with like el grande they've got something where it's like you play the game you kind of like three rounds and you score at the end of each round this one is played in two rounds and at the when you score the halfway point, you decide if you want to take victory points or money or some mix thereof, and that's going to be all your income for the second half of the game. And that is such a crazy thing because you kind of look at here and go like, okay, I've got 50 or 100 points. How many of those do I want in ducats and how many of those do I want in victory points? And so you're really thinking, betting on yourself. How lean can I run on money and still play out the second half of this game and be able to have a competitive score you're kind of maybe basing that on what your income was in the first half and what your 
you've kind of seen the action selection cards that come out, which is again, a really cool mechanism that you get a card and it's got a whole boatload of actions that you may take with it with some restrictions, a hand of two and you play one of two cards and you kind of mark a number of these actions, but not all of the actions on the given card you play. So the card play is really compelling. You'll have seen the deck at this point. You look at that second half of the game and go, knowing what I know now, what I'm gunning for, how, how lean can I run on this and how greedy can I be with the victory points and then try to finish out the game. And uh, I just think there's one of those moments where that, that FOMO or agonizing choice, this one is so huge and so in your face um, that it was kind of one of those design moves. It's like, are you kidding? You didn't, you didn't put any bumpers up. You just tell people you can take no money and 80 points, or you can take 80 money and no points. And you're just making them create this giant split. It's not like structured and he's going up. What do you think you can do? And you do that. And it's so much fun. So there's, there's really everything to me that just comes together so well in that game. And uh, if you want, if you haven't played a lot of their games before, and you just wanted to see like the, I don't know, the perfect variety pack of the mechanisms that they've come up with tried and true all and kind of in one stop shop. I think that game really does it. I'm going to have to try this out. And I, I know some people that have this, I just haven't, uh, haven't had a chance to try it. So you have, you've convinced me that's, that's a high. All right. My number one is a game that the game that I couldn't leave off the list that I, it just pained me. And it's a game that we've mentioned so far. You actually just mentioned this one, El Grande, which is the, a lot of people would consider to be the, the grand, father of all of the area control games which whether that's true or not i don't know but it is one of my favorites of a of a mechanism that i absolutely love area control games are are um, some of my favorite games Uh, el grande is a game that's been on my top 25 games somewhere along the top 15 maybe i'm not sure but it's one of my favorites i just love I just love this game. There's so much that I love about this game. The the way that you are drafting the actions and um, kind of choosing and, and and pushing your luck a little bit of of do I want to take a lot of these? Uh, do I want to take a lot of these cubes into uh, into my to my courtyard to be able to put them out on the board, or can I hold off on that right now because there's an action that I really want to take? And and you have to make those grueling decisions. But the way that the actions play out ah it's just so cool i I love it so much i love the player interaction i've introduced this to a lot of players that uh, may or may not know games and i I don't necessarily think this is an entry-level game but i've introduced it to people that aren't big gamers and they seem to pick it up really well and i don't know if i've introduced it to people that don't at least like the game a lot uh which says a lot for an area control game because i feel like that is so much of a, a hit or miss mechanism for people but for me, this is just one of my favorites. Uh, I love it. El Grande, my number one. Yeah, I'm kind of guilty. It's like I know that should be on my list, and the, if it's if it's not, it's like it's it's definitely would be my number six if this list went up right there. And uh, it's actually one of the probably hugely influential game on uh, in some ways. Not all games have territory control, obviously, and it's kind of fallen out of vogue in and out of vogue over the last few years. But the idea that you have caballeros or say workers in this game that are in a general supply that you bring into your personal supply that then you can dispatch into the game this may be the the game that does that or did that first and that's something that you'll see in many many contemporary games that that there's kind of these three states that your workers are in and we can even say like um, 
some of my games like Coloma has that where it's like your dudes are out there and then you get your dudes into your tavern the dudes in your tavern you can then go and do things with and build into cards and it's just um something that's become very familiar with people and it was done in a really interesting way and uh that game also has a they play with that mechanism a little bit where maybe you get kicked out of a province or something in that game. Well, depending on how mean it is, it might just kick you to an adjacent province. It might kick you back to your personal supply. Or if it's a really mean power, it might kick them all the way back to the general supply, in which case you'd have to draft them again. So the very uh, meanness of the cards is reflected on how hard it is to retain those workers and then redeploy them back onto the board where they could actually cast their influence. Um, there's just a lot of really cool things. That's not just, uh, you know, dudes on the map or cubes on the map, the original version, which I have. Uh, I will say that I'm not a big fan of the expansions. I feel like you can play the core game of this over and over and over again, and the expansions don't actually make it better per se. And, um, it's just, if you, if you find a, a version of it, it's a little hard to get with the big box expansions. Great. If you don't, don't feel bad. Don't have FOMO about that. Just get the core game. It's fantastic. And I kind of hear that there's a whisperings that the publisher is finally going to re-release English edition in the next year or so. So um, if you're looking at big eBay bucks, whatever else, you can just hold out and assume that uh, you can get the new edition or the old edition ones will probably loosen up, kind of like what we saw with Endeavor and some other games that were a little hard to get for a while there. I actually own the big box version of this, but I, I rarely play with any of the expansion materials. The only reason I picked up the big box is because it was cheaper than than the the base box of this game for a while and so i ended up just you know getting that even though i preferred to have just the regular base game of it so there we go that's my number one good take on that i appreciate your thoughts on that what what is your number one number one is coliseum so this was a days of wonder game from the mid 2000s and it's known for having at the time a very deluxe presentation for a non-kickstarter sort of game right it's a really nice um meeples and the giant board and just kind of felt it felt deluxe at the time now by today's standards it's just like oh it's a game with you know sure washed meeples whatever uh tmg got the rights to it reprinted it and something didn't resonate with an audience with that i think it soured some people as they either saw the days of wonder version at one point like that and the tmg one didn't hold up or it was too cartoony or the way that the, the, I don't know, this, the, the way that the artwork was kind of depicting his um, kind of grumpy looking guys just kind of standing around it just it didn't resonate properly with people so I feel like it didn't get a, uh, a fair a fair second life when TMG put it out there and, and it, actually the original copies maintained their value and is still a grail game for a lot of people just because people want Coliseum they want the days of wonder one typically is kind of what it comes down to um, that game had a big impression on me. So when I first got into uh, hobby board games, uh, I, some things didn't stick with me. I played Catan pretty early on and just like, yeah, whatever. I played Bonanza. It's like, eh. Carcassonne got me. That's what got me into the, the hobby. Some of Reiner Knizia stuff got me and I started really digging into it. But one thing that kept missing for me was uh, auction games. I didn't have the mindset for that. I even was fairly savvy with eBay, collecting things and instruments, whatever else at the time, but just pure auction games. Like I would play Modern Art or, or Raw or these other games. And I would just get clobbered, just had such a hard time with it. And uh, the auction system in Coliseum somehow resonated with me. And it's, it's the game that I could say made me like auctions. And Catan had trading in it. And it can just be this, you know, kind of kingmaker slog of whatever else. 
this has trading in it. It's kind of open trading, a little bit akin to Chinatown, which I think is another fantastic game. Um, and so it's like, all right, you take something like Recipe Fulfillment, which has been done a million times, but maybe not so much then. And then you take just open trading and then you take just going around auctioning on, on money until people pass and just take a lot of goodies. And then you perform your performances in the game, which is fulfilling a recipe per se. Each of those things to me is done in such an interesting way. And there's actually roll and move in the game too. You just go like one of the most hated mechanisms in contemporary games is roll a dice and move a little pawn until it lands on a thing and you get what you get. That's in there too. So there's a lot, almost like several things that can go terribly wrong, I think, in a game that are done in a really good way that comes together. And uh, the, speaking about like going out with a bang, like the way that Paris kind of doesn't, uh, Coliseum is almost like the perfect game for this because it's non-cumulative scoring is what happens. So you play over a course of five rounds. None of it matters except for what you score on the last turn you take when you score your thing. Everything else just gives you points. And you, if you got 25 points on your first scoring and you get 30 points on your next, you don't add those together. You just go up five points and now you're at 30. So you just kind of push your high water mark up. And so you're just adding and adding and adding and perfecting this engine that you're building just to go out with the biggest splash you possibly can. And uh, it's it's such a cool feeling and so focused to get there. And you can even you know kind of play to the back and get some bonuses for kind of running lean, not having a lot of money, kind of sandbagging. And then in that last performance, you can grab everything you need and just plug it into the perfect uh, thing and hit that big score. It's it's such a rush. So I just absolutely love that game. And uh, part of the reason when uh, I was meeting with Wolfgang at Essen is uh, Fantasia's been uh, in contact with him. We're, we're working on what is going to be kind of a new release of that game. So that's, you heard it here first. It is actually fairly secret, but I'll leak that a little bit that, uh, that if people are holding out for the days of wonder version, whatever else you should hold out for the Fantasia version. Cause if you've seen the production value of endless winter, you've seen the production value of uh, unconscious mind, take the old school Coliseum, which we all love. And then, you know, take Fantasia's artwork. And we, I'm not gonna say who the artist is that we've commissioned for this, but it's one of the most beloved artists of, uh, the day is, is uh, two artists actually. And so it's the artwork is just going to be phenomenal. So it's one of those things that we're, we're going to take something that we truly love and, uh, and do something special with it in the next year. That is going to make a lot of people very happy. Uh, <laughs> myself included. I actually, I own the TMG version of this game. This, this could have made my list as well. and actually was close to making my list. I don't hate the production of that, although there are some things that I, I really don't like, like the meeples, for example, are, are not my favorite. Um, the box is not my favorite, but I definitely think it could have done uh, been done better. And, and maybe, I don't know, it's possible. It, I don't know if you're thinking this, but there, I'm sure there's some things that can be upgraded mechanism-wise, you know, with... Uh, when did this come out? 2006, I want to say. Seven. Okay, 2007. Nearly approaching 20 years on that. Um, so I'm sure there's some some upgrades that can be made there. I'm thrilled, and I can think a lot of a, a Jamie from the Secret Cabal. I'm I'm sure would be thrilled to hear this as well. Somebody who really enjoys that game quite a bit. So that's uh, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you all have to come out with there. So Coliseum is your number one great pick. Uh, actually, I'm going to go get that from my game closet now and see if I can <laughs> round up some people to play that when it's been too long since I've played it, which is probably why it didn't make my list. 
So, okay, we're going to wrap this up uh, really just by telling people if, if somebody wants to get in touch with you or find out what is Johnny Pack working on, what, is there a way that they can connect with you or, or kind of see um, see what you have going on? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, which, you know, I use sparingly, but I'm on there. Uh, BGG, if you want to see all, you know, any linked products that I'm on there, you can do that. If you want to get a hold of me, just geek mail me on there. Um, I respond to everything. I have also like johnnypack at gmail.com, so... Uh, pretty easy to get hold of and everything that's you know officially in the pipeline will show up on bgg pretty quick with at least placeholders and then um you know i was doing freelance development for a long time but i'm really kind of easing off and just focusing on the uh, existing projects i've got in the pipeline the stuff that i'm designing or that i'm working with fantasia so i'm not really taking um, on new clients at this point um Unless it's more like a consultant sort of thing where I can just, you know, play to something once or twice, kind of give you some general feedback, but not really like get in the trenches like I have been um, the last five years doing freelance dev. So, um, yeah, come, come by and say hi or check it out. Johnny, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I appreciate your insight. You have such good insight as to, to the design process and the ways that Cromer has influenced uh, a lot of games that we play today and it, it's so refreshing and so um, helpful to, to hear your thoughts on that. So I appreciate you joining us for this episode. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us at, at Meeple Town, you can reach out to us at Meeple Town Games on all those different uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can connect with us on BGG Guild number 3407. Um, we also have a Discord now. There's lots of different ways to connect with us if you'd like to. But thank you for joining us for episode 125. Until next time, thanks for coming down to Meeple Town. Hey!